Lord, we thank you uh, for the beautiful imagery uh, of that song uh, and of so many others, which remind us that you are the light of the world, which remind us that you are the king of the world. We ask this morning that you would prepare our hearts to receive you as such and that you would help us um, by your Holy Spirit to be convicted of anything, Lord, which impedes our ability to follow you as king. We love you, we thank you, and we know that you are full of mercy and grace this morning, so come to us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. What makes a great leader? According to Niccolo Machiavelli, one of the most famous Renaissance philosophers on leadership, the greatest leaders are domineering. Listen to this quote from his famous work, The Prince. And here comes the question of whether it is better for the leader to be loved rather than feared, or to be feared rather than loved. It might, be, it might perhaps be answered that we should wish to be both. But since love and fear can hardly exist together, if we must choose between them, between them, it's much safer to be feared than to be loved. In a similar vein, speaking on his approach to foreign policy, uh, President Theodore Roosevelt was famous for saying, speak softly and carry a big stick, you will go far. <clears throat> By this, he meant that a good leader doesn't bluff. It doesn't yell doesn't intimidate with his words, but by his action, he demands respect and obedience. What a contrast, then, it is when we read Jesus' own discourse on this in Matthew chapter 20. The disciples had been jockeying for position, trying to assert their right to be the leader, one over the other. And Jesus gathers them together and says this, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Today's the first Sunday, as you've heard, in the season of Epiphany. Uh, Epiphany began actually back on January 6th, that was this last Thursday, with a festival often called Three Kings Day. Um, in the Protestant American church, we don't typically celebrate this day. But the season of Epiphany... Uh, and the Three Kings Day itself, is a reminder to us that Jesus, Jesus was meant not simply to be the light to Israel, but to be the light of the whole world. Just as the Magi who traveled from the east came to behold Jesus as a boy, and yet proclaimed him as king, um, we have the opportunity, who were once far off, to do the same. This is the big picture 
of our sermon series titled, Give Us a King, Hope and Tragedy in Saul and David. By looking at the rise and fall of Saul and David, we will come to better understand what it is that God desires from his leaders. Spoiler alert, it doesn't look a lot like the descriptions of Machiavelli and Roosevelt. By the end of this series, our prayer is that each of us would be able to join the people of Israel saying, give us a king. But not one of these domineering, tyrannical kings like all the nations, but the humble, the merciful King Jesus. And so we began our series with that passage from 1 Samuel chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, I would uh, invite you to open them there now. Uh, as a refresher this week, I read uh, chapters 1 through 7. Uh, if you get a chance, I recommend you do the same. Uh, it's a really fascinating uh, picture uh, of how Israel is in desperate need of leadership. Um, and even uh, paralleled in uh, the fact that Hannah, um, a faithful woman of God, uh, desiring a son, um, is committed uh, to following God despite the challenging circumstances. Um, Israel finds itself in a time of transition. Up to this point in history, it's a nation that has been led by charismatic leaders like Moses and Joshua. And then by several judges like Samson, Gideon, and Deborah. During the time of the judges, the leadership is decentralized. Each of the 12 tribes uh, and many of the families of Israel have a great deal of autonomy. But the result of this is that they often did what was right in their own eyes. Oppression, abuse, manipulation, and idolatry reigned at that time. From time to time, there would be a faithful judge, like Samuel, the prophet, who would come along and call the people back to worship God in spirit and truth. But <laughs> passing on this leadership proved to be a fickle matter. For we know that Samuel's own sons did not follow in the ways of their father, or in the ways of the Lord. And so Israel finds itself in a time of leadership crisis. This is the backdrop of verses 1 through 6. Let's read them again together. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But this displeased Samuel. Now, given this historical backdrop that I've just shared with you, the request of the elders seems reasonable enough, right? Uh, the loose confederation of 12 tribes is no longer working. 
much like uh, the founding fathers of our country who moved away from the Articles of Confederation to the Constitution, there's a need in Israel for a more centralized government. Moreover, Samuel's own sons have proved ill-equipped to rule the people justly. So, what's Samuel's deal? Why is he mad? The answer lies in the ultimate rationale given by the people for their desire for a king. Yes, Samuel is old. Yes, his sons are unjust. But ultimately, the people of Israel want a king for one primary reason, to be like all the nations. The elders of Israel, in this way, are being pragmatic. If something seems to work well for those surrounding them, they should give it a try. I imagine many of us can relate. But there's a fundamental flaw in their thinking. God set Israel apart from all the other nations of the world that they might be a light, illuminating the path to the one true God and to the way of salvation. But rather than stand out, they want to assimilate. Can we relate? How often has the church adopted the best business models, marketing strategies, growth strategies, only to find that somewhere along the way it lost an essential part of its calling, of what made it unique to begin with? Can any of us honestly say that we've never conformed to the patterns of this world to gain approval, security, or success? And yet, Jesus teaches us that our calling is much like that of Israel. He says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Accommodation to the prevailing cultures of this world around us is one of the greatest threats to our ability to bear the light of Christ to our neighbors. And it takes on too many forms to name here. It's not a unique problem to one political party, to one gender, to one ethnicity, to one socioeconomic strata. It's a human problem. And we do well to acknowledge and confess this morning the ways in which we have thought, spoken, and acted like all the nations. In his distress, Samuel prays to the Lord, but God gives him a curious response. Unlike Samuel, God is not surprised by the desires of his people. He's seen it so many times before. And so he responds to Samuel like this. Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me, and serving other gods, so are they doing also to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the kings who shall reign over them. 
God, in his severe mercy, gives his people over to their wickedness. You heard me right. It was his mercy. In that mercy that God allows his people to take an obstinate path which will lead to their enslavement to a sinful human king. Unlike the kings of this world, God will not force his people to follow him. He will not allow, he will allow them to reject him. But he won't allow them to fly blind, so he instructs Samuel to tell them what this decision of theirs is going to cost. Samuel is faithful to God's instruction, and he provides a detailed account in verses 10 to 17. The king will do one thing more than any other. Take. See on the screen all the things which he will take. <clears throat> Their sons, their daughters, your land, your produce, your servants, and your livestock. That about sums it up. In his commentary on 1 Samuel, Richard Curry summarizes it this way. However much a king may accomplish for a nation, it is certain that he will take more than he gives. He will take and you will serve. Such is the despotism whenever sinful men are set in the place of God over our lives. We would do well to reflect on this this morning. What are the functional kings and kingdoms that we serve? These could be corporations, could be political affiliations, social justice causes, employers, and even those little screens that we have in our pockets. What exactly is the thing which promises freedom but takes far more than it gives in our lives? The final warning from Samuel to the people is this. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Hearing this stern warning, the people are undeterred. I love the way Raven read it this morning. They assert no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Naively, they go on as if the king will be their subject, the one who judges and fights their battles for them, when in fact it will be the other way around. So God instructs Samuel to obey the voice of the people and to appoint for them a king. When I think of their obstinance, I cannot help but remember myself as a fourth grader. Uh, my parents had just given me my very first pocket knife. And with the knife, they gave me instructions about what to do and what not to do. Chief among them was to never cut something where the knife could come back towards my body. <clears throat> Shortly after receiving the instructions and the knife, my parents saw me trying to cut the string of my yo-yo 
which had become tangled in knots. They saw the precarious approach that I was taking, and they said, put that knife down and wash your hands for dinner. I followed their instructions. However, after dinner, I snuck up to my room with my knife and my yo-yo. I went into my closet, and I closed the door, and I continued to work on my task. Right here, on this finger of my right hand, I bear the scar of that foolish disobedience. My parents could have taken the knife away as soon as they saw I wasn't using it properly. But instead, they let me learn my lesson. I consider that a great mercy um, because not long after that, I became a woodworker. And there are all sorts of tools which can hurt your fingers. <laughs> and I have learned not to do foolish things with tools. So too, God allows his people to choose subjugation first to their own king and then to the kings of Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Not because he's callous, but in order that he might prepare them to receive the true and perfect king that would proclaim freedom for the captives and the day of the Lord's favor. This brings us to our gospel reading from John 18. After his arrest, Jesus was brought to the Roman governor in the province of Judea, Pontius Pilate. The Jewish authorities clearly felt threatened by Jesus, by his growing popularity, and by his authoritative teaching, which contradicted theirs. And so they asked Pilate to administer the Roman form of capital punishment, crucifixion. This is a punishment that was reserved in those days primarily for insurrectionists, for those who would lead revolts and try to challenge the authority of a given province. As such, many would-be revolutionaries would think twice before challenging the authority of Caesar, the king of the world. With this backdrop, we can see and understand Pilate's line of questioning a little more clearly in verse 33. It says this, So Pilate entered the headquarters again and called Jesus to him. Are you the king of the Jews? In other words, are you a revolutionary? Are you going to attempt your, to free your people from my and by extension Caesar's authority? Jesus' response is a somewhat enigmatic yes and no. Listen to it again. Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation of chief priests has delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, 
You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Y'all, Jesus never calls himself a king, much less the king of the Jews. But he does say he has a kingdom. And he says that his kingdom is neither from this world or of this world. It's of an altogether different character. If his kingdom was of this world, his servants would have fought to protect him, to keep him from being arrested. We remember that Peter attempted that very thing in the garden, and yet Jesus stopped him. I had a professor of New Testament uh, biblical studies named Mary Ann Mai Thompson. She has a commentary on John. She describes this interchange this way. Jesus never protests the legitimacy of either Roman or Jewish power, nor is he shown contesting the validity of the charges against him or of his trial. Rather, he declares that his kingdom has a different manifestation in this world than does the kingdom that seeks his death. Jesus' kingdom is characterized not by taking life, but by giving life. Not by fighting to avoid death at the hands of others, but by dying for others. Not by dominating power, but by bearing witness to the truth. What comes to light in the trial narrative in John is not merely the question of whether Jesus is the king of the Jews, but rather the entire character of his kingship and his kingdom. And y'all, the tragedy of this story is not the death of Jesus, for in his death we have life. The tragedy is that the people who just a week earlier proclaimed him as king, reject him. They reject him for Barabbas. And ultimately, at the end of this narrative, they utter these words, we have no king but Caesar. Here's the reality. We all need a king. We all serve a kingdom, whether we're conscious of it or not. So we need to ask ourselves honestly, what kind of king do we want to serve? Do we want to serve a king and a kingdom that promises freedom and security, all the while it takes these very things from us? Or do we want to follow the king that lays himself down and invites us to do the same? Y'all, Jesus is the only king who can inspire both love and fear in equal measure. It's our love for Jesus that leads us to repentance and to obedience. It's our fear of Jesus that leads us to reverential worship, which he deserves. Jesus is the one who spoke softly silent like a lamb before his shearers and carried a big stick, the cross, 
upon his back. Jesus turned out to be the very king that the people of Israel had requested from the beginning. One who would go out and fight their battles for them. Jesus doesn't send the infantry and then the cavalry and stand back from a distance monitoring the progress of the battle. No. Jesus himself leads the charge. And like a good shepherd, he lays down his life for his sheep. Y'all, that's the king I want to follow. How about you? If you've never uh, made a conscious decision to pledge your allegiance to Christ as king, why not this morning? (laughs) If God is stirring your heart, I want to invite you to reach out to some of the other leaders here at the church. We'd love to have a conversation to encourage where we can to support where we can as you consider following Christ as your Lord. Following Jesus is costly. But what's the alternative? He's the only source of true life, hope, and security. So, here's my prayer. May God make clear to us any and every counterfeit kingdom and king that we are serving, that we may lay aside those false kingdoms, those false kings in pursuit of the true king and the kingdom which endures. And may we be like our king, willing to lay down our lives for others. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for the good examples that we strive towards, aspire towards, and we thank you for the poor examples um, that we often find ourselves in. Uh, We ask Jesus that you would help us this morning to acknowledge you as king, to serve you as king. I pray for anyone here who is uh, pondering in their hearts, what does it mean? (laughs) Such a metaphorical uh, statement to follow Jesus as king. What does it mean to do that? I pray that you would give them courage, Lord, um, to seek answers in your scripture, to seek answers uh, from fellow believers, and to seek answers from your Holy Spirit, which is eager to reveal truth. That's the very purpose for which Jesus came into the world, we're told. And I pray for anyone who recognizes that you are their king, and yet they have other kingdoms um, that they have uh, sought the prosperity of. Lord, I am in that camp myself. I pray that you would help us to humbly confess and to receive the mercy, which is the greatest mercy ever given from Jesus our Lord. Thank you, Lord. Draw us closer to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.